we see what it means to be a believer in Jesus, the weight and the responsibility that it carries and, and what comes with it. And it left us with a question that we should constantly ask ourselves for the rest of our lives. Does what I believe drive me to more godliness? You see, we continue the story. Paul leaves Titus with a charge to establish pastures on the island of Creek and also to shut the mouths of false teachers. And immediately Titus is met with adversity because the church has been taking a hit from false teachers. People are believing what they ought not to believe. And in the letter, Paul shares our hearts, shares his heart uh, for order in the church. And he starts in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. What you ultimately believe about God will show up in the way that you live. Let me say it again. What you believe, what you ultimately believe about God will show up in the way that you live. Titus is known as a true child in the common faith to Paul, which means that he was under Paul's wing. He followed Paul wherever he went. He learned from him and he shared the same core beliefs about Jesus that he had. So when Paul looked at Titus, it was, I recognize that faith. That's the same faith that I have. The same qualities that you, fought, that you walk through, that's the same ones that I walk through. He joined Paul on missionary efforts and he's seen the power of change that the gospel brings to people. And so he's well aware of what sound doctrine is. And because he is capable and because he is qualified to establish pastors on this island, Paul leaves him at Crete to finish what they started. And it's evident that there was a foundation of faith. There was an evidence of, of um, truth that was laid there but forgotten because Paul says, this is the reason why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained into order. But we see that the seafood men came and changed the hearts and the minds of the people. And so depending on the teaching that is, that is being consumed, wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> depending on the teaching that is consumed, it will either leave a man's heart to exalt God above self or self above God. So the people that were deceiving the other people there with false teaching uh, for selfish games, self was their God. They received shameful gain from this. And so they did not think about furthering people in righteousness and righteous living and honoring God, but they honored themselves above God. Those that strayed away from the truth and began to believe uh, Jewish myths and the commands of men, they saw themselves as their God because they saw the false teaching as appealing rather than the truth. And so it's, it's the same with what we deal with today. There's always a new knowledge coming out that someone claims to have found. And many people are so quick to gravitate from it instead of submitting to Christ. And so with all the teachings, all the different teachings in the world, we constantly are being challenged with the question, what is considered sound doctrine? What is the truth that we can lay hold to, that our souls can lay hold to, and it will transform us, to be, transform us to be the people that we're called to be. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And so sound doctrine is, is the words that come from Jesus, what he testified about himself. And that 
lining up with godly living. That's what we should be consuming. And so if the truth of Jesus, it, it, the, if the truth of Jesus is not the central core of the doctrine that you believe, it is useless. It will value nothing because it's far from the truth. In John chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, men come and ask Jesus after they've seen him multiply bread and fish to feed 5,000. They come and ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. John wraps up his entire gospel in chapter 21 where he says that all of this was written. I've written all of this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. When you believe in Jesus' name and the work of salvation that he accomplished on the cross, his resurrection, you find new life. And this new life gives you the ability to walk in godliness. But yet, the people there, there's an unhealthy stigma about the, about the people of Crete. Um, in chapter 1, it says that the prophet, their own prophets were saying that these people are always liars, they're evil beasts, they're lazy gluttons. They've been grouped together with an expectation that they will always be like this. And yet Paul still urges Titus not only to teach sound doctrine, but to live it out. So chapter 2, verse 7 in Titus, it says, Seek to show yourself a model of good works. And so teaching and modeling will produce a fruit of godliness in others when they look into you. When they look in your life, they begin to wonder and inquire, why are you like this? And so your obedience to God's word is a communal effort and every generation is involved. It's not, you, you're not being obedient just for yourself, but for the others around you. And so generations matter. It's all about discipleship and community. Um, and, and it's needed because it exposes where we fall short, but it also encourages us when there's growth in our process. You know, there's nothing better than for somebody to, to lovingly call you out on somewhere that you have missed in your life. And there's also nothing better than somebody to encourage you when you've been making steps in faith. All of this builds us up to a mature faith in Jesus. And so <laughs> it's been a privilege to have the opportunity to live next door to... Uh, Monique and Andrew, right? Uh, they're, they're the members here. And um, I, I don't call them friends. I call them family. And it's funny because next door, I mean, though we live next door, we don't say that we have a, a two-bedroom apartment, a two-bedroom apartment, a two-bath apartment. Now we say we have a four-bedroom, four-bathroom house, okay? So we, we, we're always around each other. And the thing that I value about this relationship the most is that I cannot pull a wall over their eyes. They see me when I, sometimes I'm, I'm a lousy husband or a, a lousy dad at times, I need correction. And I have to repent and I have to change. And I remember Andrew telling me something. He says, man, you're the one who brought me to Christ. So I'm looking, you, looking at you to work this thing out so that I can learn. And it was a conviction in my heart like, man, I need to really check how I live. How can I ever get better unless they were around me? And so it, it, it's, it's costly. Uh, it's, it causes you to be vulnerable. But you need to know how you really are if you expect to grow. And so Paul starts with the older generation, and he ends with the slave, showing that no matter what age 
or situation you're in, you are called to reflect the beauty of Jesus by godly living. And so he urges the older men, be sober-minded, dignified, sound in love and faith, steadfastness and self-control. Older men are getting in the, in, in the age where, man, I'm stuck, in my, I'm stuck in my ways. I'm just trying to finish the race. I'm tired, you know. And yet Paul just says, no, continue steadfastly. Continue to go forward. Why? Because it paves the way for the younger men. It paves the way for the younger men to, to endure and to say that, man, I can look at this faith and say, it's possible for me to make it at the end. That's a godly man that I can look at, and I'm encouraged. It gives us hope, us younger men hope that it's possible to endure to the end. And so I was uh, reading recently um, through, through, through the Church Fathers uh, writings, and there was a writing on um, the martyrdom of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of, the, of John who followed Jesus. And he was a bishop in the town of Smyrna. And so he lived this life sharing the gospel, loving on others. And then finally the powers that be realized that he wasn't calling God the things that they call God. And so he brought, was brought to trial, condemned, and he had one last chance to say, man, you know what, old man, if you would just recant your faith, call Caesar, Lord, we'll let you go free. But he said, 80 and six years have I lived, and I have n- never denied him. Why, how could I blaspheme the name of, the king, of my king and my God? Stand steadfast. And he was eventually killed for that, but he stood steadfast and God was honored. And so Paul urges the younger men to be self-controlled. And it's hard for us as a young man, myself, going through this life, different trends, different grabs of knowledge. This is the way, no, this is how you should live. And so we're constantly bombarded by what the culture is telling us and how we should live. But yet if we we, if we look to someone who is seasoned in the faith, we're encouraged and we can hold fast with endurance. And uh, older men, you need us as well. <laughs> older men, as you pour your life into young men and you see us progress, it reminds you and brings you back to the time, man, I used to be in those shoes. And it fills your heart with compassion and love for the younger. He goes on to older women. Older women are urged to teach the younger women how to live reverent lives in light of the gospel. Right now, the culture does not see a Christ-saturated marriage and home life as a priority. The the culture right now doesn't see purity and, and righteousness and walking in the ways of a Christ as something to be admired. We need you. Older women, you're needed. Your faith is needed. Paul calls them to teach the value of servanthood to the family and purity and in conduct. Those are the things that grabs God's heart. He he loves it. When is the last time, those who are older, when was the last time that you've grabbed somebody to walk alongside you in discipleship? Younger women, just as older women are to teach the younger women, so the younger women must Learn as much as they can from those who have experienced life where they are. Will you allow yourself to be teachable, younger women? Proverbs 1.5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning 
and the one who understands obtain guidance. And so it's wise to sit under those who have been before you. It shows that you have understanding that you can't live this life on your own, but you do need help along the way. And what you learn can encourage other women around you, especially in a time like this. It's a time where everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And if you want to know how bad it is when you do things that you feel are right in your own eyes, all you have to do is look in the book of Judges. Time after time after time, God avails them and saves them, raises up a judge. They do what's evil inside of the Lord. The judge saves them. 40 years, 20 years of freedom. Judge dies. They do what's evil inside of the Lord. They follow their own heart, pattern after pattern. God is merciful, yet God is merciful in all. And so finally he gets to the last part. He goes to the slave. And back in those times, the, the system was considered um, a slave to a master uh, was, a, was a, a means to pay off debt many of the times. But because they're sinful individuals, because people are sinful in their hearts, slavery was abused. This, this type of slave system was abused and people were abusing the slaves for shameful game and demeaning their humanity, which God does not condone. He does not condone slavery. But even then, God can still be glorified in that situation. Paul says that though that you find yourself in that situation back in those times, if you find yourself in that situation to show godly behavior, which involves submissiveness and showing all good faith. Peter elaborates on this. He, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Servants, be subjected to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also, also to the unjust. And I love the part when it says to the good and gentle because there were masters who loved their slaves and there were slaves that loved their masters. In Deuteronomy it says, man, if you don't want to leave your master because you love your master, then an all will be put through your ear and you will be his slave forever. And so there was a relationship there. But there was also those who were unjust, who treated them unfairly. And yet in verse 20 he says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That's hard. How can that be a gracious thing, God? I'm being mistreated. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm serving those that are, that are above me. I'm serving them, but, and they're treating me shamefully. How is that a gracious sight? Because Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered for righteousness' sake. He didn't do anything wrong. He incurred the wrath that we were supposed to have, and he imputed his righteousness upon us. And he didn't do anything wrong. He entrusted himself, Peter says, to a faithful creator. And we should do the same. But I can compare this to the workplace. We who have a responsibility to bring the attractiveness of Christ in our workplace, we are, we are to do it by the way that we work. So is this your posture towards work when things get hard? I'm talking to myself in this because it is so hard because you try and you try and you feel like you're overlooked, but you're not overlooked because God sees your efforts. God sees your efforts. Colossians 3.23 says to work wholeheartedly unto the Lord and not unto men because your reward is him. At the end of the day, he is to be pleased. 
He is to be glorified in all your efforts. And so, uh, my last point is that your obedience matters. Your obedience matters. So going back to chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 in Titus, Paul tells him that as you seek to show yourself as a model of good works and teach sound teaching, your opponents will be silenced and shamed, having nothing evil to say about us. And so your obedience to sound doctrine is in a way a witness to close the mouths of those who would scoff the word of God. And the word of God can be exalted and hearts can possibly be changed. God could use how you live as an opening for the gospel. And so just looking back at chapter 1, the deceitful empty talkers, they were robbing people through shameful game by teaching them things that they ought not teach. But if they heeded to sound doctrine, they no longer have that shameful game anymore. They're seen as what they are, liars. The stigma of the Cretan has changed from a known liar, evil beast, and lazy glutton to a people who loves their neighbors as themselves. Families who were once destroyed by false teaching are being restored and transformed because of the sound doctrine. So your obedience matters. Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, you are the light of the world city on a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and place it under a basket but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's what we're here for, to reflect the glory of God from a changed heart. God changes our heart and we live and follow him and trust him, and in doing so, we become witnesses by the way that we speak and by the way that we act. So my last questions would be, or my applications would be, first to examine yourself. Do you know God? Has your heart been changed by what Jesus has done for you? Have you just merely professed from your mouth that Jesus is Lord, but your words, but your actions are different? Because that's what the religious people were doing. It says that they professed to know God, but they denied him by their works. Jesus said in himself that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Is that you? Do you know God? And my last one would be let others examine you. Are you in community where the truths of your faith are being tested and strengthened and refined? To the older generation, will you find someone to pour your life experience and to pour Christ into? And to the younger generation, us, will we, be, will we put pride aside and find someone who is seasoned in the faith to learn and do life with? My last illustration, I'll leave you with this. This is a bit of encouragement. Um, so I recently watched a documentary, um, and it was called The Long Goodbye. And it was a documentary on a woman named Kara, Kara Tibbetts. And she was a mother of four. Um, she was a pastor's wife, and she lived a very healthy life. Um, she was a vegan. She exercised. She did all that she could to sustain a healthy life. So she ended up going to the doctor one day, 
and then find out she had cancer. So suddenly life changed. And yet she still held on to her faith and said, you know what? I believe that God is going to heal me. I'm going, I'm going to give it all that I've got. I'm going to go to treatments. I'm going to do everything that the doctors say while believing that God will heal me. But God had other plans for her life, and she ended up having stage four cancer and then was going to die. And so she had a choice to make. She could stay and wallow in, in self-pity and, and just be sad and, and, uh, of, her, uh, of her diagnosis, or she could continue to trust the Lord. And so she dedicated the rest of her life to spread the love of Christ wherever she could go. And the documentary showed that. Many people's lives were changed all across the world from her testimony of staying steadfast in the midst of suffering because God is good even though I have cancer. Her faith was most seen in how she lived even though death was certain. And she left a quote that brought me to tears when I read it because it's true. She said, we live so well in America and yet we still live in this idea that we have to win and be better instead of realizing that contentment is knowing Christ is the goal. Contentment is knowing Christ. And that's the goal of life. And from that contentment, we can be such generous people. Will you choose to live for Christ today? Will you choose to believe that Him dying for, in your place for your sin and rising from the dead to give you new life? Would you believe that? And would you walk in Him and trust Him Choose Christ. So let's pray. Father, we just, we just thank you so much for your mercy. Thank you so much for your love and your grace. Thank you so much that you're so patient with us, Lord. We are constantly tossed to and fro by the things around us, Lord, and yet you're merciful. You still wait for us. I pray, Father, that you would let the light of the gospel lead us to good works, Lord. There are many people watching, waiting to condemn our faith. But you are faithful, Lord. And if we can continue walking and trusting in you, Lord, the witness will be there. And opportunities will open where we can share how good you are. Lord, lead us more and more into godliness. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so uh, at this time, we're going to be going into a time of communion. So as the, the band comes up and as a hospitality team comes up, um, this is a uh, time of celebration. Uh, for those who believe in Jesus, we're able to rejoice and long and wait for his return. And as we take the elements, we remember how Jesus sacrificed his life for us. He didn't have to. There was nothing good in us. Yet he loved us because he loved us. And he died it was, and it was risen from the grave. And so for those who believe, you can, make, you can come up and, and receive the, the elements of communion. And for those who may not believe or are still struggling, take this time to reflect on what's being heard. Do not harden your heart. You have heard the gospel. Do not harden your heart. Jesus is waiting. You may come at your leisure. <laughs>